Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Thanks for tuning in to RGA's Adweeks and the 4A's Beyond the Pledge podcast series, where we pose and discuss tough topics on equity, diversity, and inclusion. We also tear down myths and discuss how we can hold brands and agencies accountable. I'm your series host, Jai Tedeschi. Months after the world's racial reckoning, why must organizations keep listening? To understand and ultimately solve any problem, one must listen to and understand the individuals that the issue most affects. To discuss why brands that must embrace the power of listening to advance the fight for justice and equity within their organizations, I'm joined by Natasha Bowman, founder and president at Performance Renew. For almost 20 years, Natasha has been a champion for employees, working with organizations to create engaging, equitable, and high-performance workplaces. Natasha's ability to rectify workplace issues has coined her the nickname, the Workplace Doctor. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I love that nickname, the Workplace Doctor. It's, it's awesome. So I wanted to start about talking just wider about the, the industry and the world right now. And I really feel that we're starting to lose momentum and show a voice when it comes to the conversation on race and equity in general. And I want to kind of talk about how we keep that conversation going and the same level of consciousness as we did when we had a racial reckoning. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, you're absolutely correct. You know, after the murder of George Floyd, that really uh, awakened the consciousness of America and the workplace. And I've been doing this work for a couple of decades now. And we were finally invited to have conversations around race and racism in the workplace that previously were invited. And it was just such a, you know, a moment in history um, where you heard CEOs of top organizations say, Black Lives Matter. You heard CEOs of top organizations say, yeah, we have historically perpetuated systemic racism in our organizations. And Black employees had the opportunity to share their experiences. But as you have stated, as time has gone on, I've noticed those conversations are being invited less and less. And so it really concerns me that these experiences and these inequities will be left behind. And so, you know, we have to find ways to keep this momentum going, not wait for another critical event to bring consciousness to the workplace and embed anti-racism and embed identifying and rectifying, you know, inequities on a day-to-day basis, part of our business, you know, it should be goal-oriented just as we reach our bottom line in terms of profit and service um, and other goals that organizations try to reach. 
rectifying inequities across different differences at work, not just race, should also be part of every organization's, you know, goals. And I think that, you know, we've got to find some way to embed it in there. Yeah, I think that's crazy to imagine that, you know, in all the time with performance, we knew that it wasn't really top of the agenda. And then come this big racial reckoning happening, you get like, like an influx of these requests, you know, that peak and start to like reduce as time goes on. It's kind of, it is really worrying and scary that it's taken such a big event for this to actually happen. Right. You know, it's ironic. You know, usually organizations would call me as a consultant if they had an individual who was submitting a claim of racism or, you know, some sort of prejudice. And Mm -hmm. I would come and do an investigation, make a recommendation. And I've got to say, you know, a lot of times organizations would acknowledge that that person experienced what they claimed they did. But it was part of my job, unfortunately, to figure out a way for them to go away, to make the whole matter go away and not really. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, yeah. so sometimes that was, oh, here's a settlement check along with your non-disclosure agreement. And mm. just I like to say, you know, it was kind of a take the pay and go away type model. Yeah. That organizations <laughs> yes. you know, so it's, you know, we don't want to hear about this. We don't want to address it. It's nothing we can do. And also it's like an isolated incident. This happened and it's two individuals. It's an isolated incident rather than we have a systemic problem in our organization. Exactly. So to hear, you know, back in May, back in June, organizations finally addressing that this is a systemic issue Mm. and we have not done the right thing to address these issues was definitely inspiring and motivational. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I'm just so concerned that we're going to get back to not acknowledging that it's a systemic issue taking it on a case-by-case basis and silencing, once again, the voices of Black employees across workplaces in America. And find a way to keep that voice going. Many Black employees that I talk to, they're still very skeptical to share their experiences. And even as I was facilitating a lot of conversations in workplaces, I would notice that a lot of Black employees were very, very quiet. And I was thinking, hey, this is your time. This is your opportunity to share your experience. Yeah. I would reach out to some of them privately and say, I know for a fact you have a personal experience that people would benefit learning from. And they would say, you know what? I still don't trust it. I still don't trust that I can share my voice without some sort of, you know, retaliation. So that level of trust was already not there. And many people said, look, this is just a check the box. This is just an opportunity to to jump on the bandwagon with everybody else to say Black Lives Matter. You know, we have a a racism problem in our workplaces. Mm -hmm. It won't last long. And I was so hoping that wasn't the case, you know, that everyone was wrong. And I would encourage them to say, no, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. But now I'm kind of seeing what the apprehension was, you know, because it's just not at the forefront the way in the way that we saw it previously. Yeah, it's kind of like surface level, you know, and I know that a lot of the work you do is to try and get companies to do more than just like talk about it and play lip surface and actually do something about it. And, you know, you've been doing a lot of listening sessions and you've been working with um, RGA and looking at our environment and our culture um, of inclusivity and listening to employees. How do you think that plays a role in keeping the conversation going and creating that sort of sense of trust with an organization? 
Absolutely. I think the more that you invite the conversation, the more trust you'll build. So, you know, if it's just a one time or a couple of times, of course, you're not going to get my trust. But if I'm continuing to invite the conversation and then, like you said, I'd be go beyond the lip source service. So now I'm going to invest and commit right resources, money, people into this work you'll start to gain more trust by the employees because employees can read right through if you just have a couple of listening sessions and you're done with it. But when they start to see some transformations in the culture that's very proactive, very intentional by the senior leaders, and again, they start to see the work you know, embedded into the day-to-day work and functions of the organization, then you'll start to get that trust to be rebuilt. And, and that's really, you know, a lot of organizations have tapped me not to just lead and facilitate the conversations, but to help them to determine what is that strategic plan so that we have this strategy in place to weave it into the fabric of our everyday work. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like the listening sessions, what they unearth just goes to show the how sort of deep the issue is and how embedded it is in the company. And it's felt by, you know, many people of many different identities. I know that one of the things we've spoken about in the past is that we need to stop thinking about this as one injustice at a time. And how can we broaden the net and start to think about the differences of of others. And I think these listening sessions help to unearth that. Exactly. And you brought up a great point, Jai. And and of course, I'm a big proponent of ensuring that Black employees across America and BIPOC employees across America have equity. But I'm also a big proponent of everyone having the opportunity to be successful. And so what we have seen historically is that organizations don't respond to the, you know, the dimensions of diversity until there has been some sort of significant event. So 2017, Harvey Weinstein was, you know, outed for sexual harassment. And we started the Time's Up movement in the workplace and then, you know, kept on with the Me Too movement. And we start to have a lot of conversations about sexual harassment, sex discrimination. You start to see organizations start to promote female leadership. You know, a lot of things were happening there. So that goes on. You saw states change laws, you know, New York State, along with other states, you know, mandated sexual harassment training, did away with non-disclosure agreements. There was all of these changes that were made. We started to see momentum around issues in addressing inequities or sex-based discrimination. Yeah. Then, okay, so that started, I started- So that came out, now. Kind yeah. of started to slow down. <laughs> so I was doing the same thing three years ago, talking about sexual harassment and sex-based discrimination. Yeah. And then I start to see that slow down. I'm like, okay, I guess that's over. Nobody cares anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was just, oh, come do the mandatory sexual harassment training. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, then here we are, you know, um, after the murder of George Floyd, now the same thing is happening where we're now having these same conversations and, and things around race. But there's so many other differences and there's so many other underrepresented groups in the workplace who are experiencing the same inequities. And I think about top of my head is always members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah. You know, and when we think about it, just this year, 2020, did they get 
federal protections in the workplace. Uh, Ken, it's crazy to think it's 2020 and that's that's just happening. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that that wasn't even no. in place in the first place. In the first place. Yeah. And if you live out of states like New York or California where there weren't state and city protections, and you know, you think about other states that didn't have those protections, your boss could walk in at any moment and say, you're fired because you're gay. Yeah. And imagine that psychological burden that oh, that gosh. had on members of that community. And, you know, it led to them not being, you know, feeling comfortable of sharing their sexual orientation. And yeah. I don't know about you, but I talk about my kids and husband, you know, every yeah, day. Yeah, free is a part of your life. Life. Yeah, it's part yeah. of my identity. I can't imagine coming to work on a day-to-day basis. And even in states like New York and New York City, where there are protections, I still hear those stories. I still hear I'm not comfortable sharing or I've experienced some sort of discrimination based upon that. So, you know, we've got to address the LGBTQIA community and and listen to their experiences Mm. and remove those inequities. It's like we need the policies in place to be able for people to feel comfortable in sharing and to be able to form that trust. Because if you're worried about sharing something that's happened to you, an experience that you're having, or even a disagreement in a work situation or on a project, you need to have that protection from your policies and from the law in order to feel comfortable. But you know, but on the other hand, you say that we need the policies and laws. And I agree with that, that provides Mm -hmm. you with a minimum protection, but you got to think about it, right? Race, discrimination against uh, race has been in the sex and everything else has been on the books from a federal Mm -hmm. standpoint since 1964, right? Yeah. And, but why is it all of these decades later, we're still having the same conversations Mm -hmm. because policies and laws are not enough. They are just words on paper. It's about culture. And if you really look at those laws, there are so many loopholes for organizations to be able to get away with unlawful behavior. I mean, I feel like they're even written like, we're going to put this on paper just to say we have it, mm-hmm. but we're going to write in all these loopholes so that people can still do what they want to do and hire whoever they want to hire, promote whoever they want to promote. And you can just create new excuses, right? This person was qualified or this person interviewed better or, and you you know about this, if someone is saying they're being bullied or harassed by a leader, oh, he's an equal opportunity jerk. As long as I, I can be discriminatory, I I can harass you as a black mm-hmm. woman, but as long as I treat just one white woman the same way, I can say, nope, not discriminating yeah. harassment. I'm just a jerk. I'm just a bully. Yeah. That's what that's that's just, just, yeah, it's just my role. character. It comes <laughs> with the role. This brings me to something like we talked about. I think it's it's such an interesting subject about professionalism, right? About that whole like I can be a jerk. That's just me. That's my personality. It comes with being a leader. Professionalism, being a leader, it's okay to be a little bit of a jerk at that sort of level. What do you think of like the definition of professionalism and how skewed it is to like one group over another? You know, I want to just throw away the whole word, you know, because (laughs) that word really Mm -hmm. has no true definition, right? In mm-hmm. fact, I want to just Google it just to see what it says, but it's so subjective. <laughs> and yes. like you said, it's skewed one way. It's skewed for whatever the expectation of the cultural norm is, right? Absolutely. That's, what, that's what's considered professional. Mm-hmm. So if that means, you know, early in my career, I have big curly hair, you know, I decided, oh, let me wear my hair curly today, which I never did. And my boss told me, oh my gosh, your hair is so big today. You must not have any important meetings. Uh, something. 
I wish I could say that's crazy. I can't believe it, but I could definitely tell a similar story. I'm putting all of my energy in the morning of making sure my hair is as straight as it can possibly be, making sure that my dress is quote unquote professional as it can possibly be. I worked at one organization and they were such snobs and elitists, to be honest. I would keep a matrix in my closet and I would write down if someone saw me in a particular suit, like who all saw me that day? So I would make sure they didn't see me. Imagine having all of that pressure on top of trying to do your job. How can we even be like your true self and comfortable and be able to to bring that? It's impossible because you got to think about, okay, my hair, my clothes, how I'm speaking. I'm standing now with the work from home, my background and my environment. Where do I put my camera? What's my reverse screen? There's so much on top of just trying to like be the best you in that role. And we're, we're conforming to something that is just completely made up and like subject to interpretation, as you say. And you brought such a good point about even transitioning to this virtual environment. And mm. many people think, Oh, working virtually. Oh, that's great. You're not in, you know, if you were working in a toxic work environment, oh, I'm not working side by side with those people, yada, yada, yada. But, but think about this. If you work in a toxic work environment or environment that's not inclusive, when you come home, your home has typically been your safe place. Yeah, okay? your haven. That's mm-hmm. when you can let your hair down, be your true authentic self. You're surrounded by people that love you. Um, mm. And as we all know, many people cover and hide many things about their identity at work. Not just if I work in a toxic work environment. You know, again, there are things that about our identities that don't fit into the cultural norm. And so yeah. therefore we keep it at home. I may be hiding my sexual orientation. I may be hiding my disability status or my social economic status, but you know, I separate that. But then in March, I invited that toxic workplace into my home. Yeah. Without, you didn't have a choice about it either. And I didn't have a choice. So like Mm -hmm. you just said, you know, I can look, you know, into the zoom background. I'm making all my bias, right. is kicking in left and right. My brain is making all kinds of assumptions. I'm like, Oh, Oh, wait, is that house cleaned up? It's new bias that you didn't even have before. You're so right. I've had people zooming in and just say, oh, I was looking on your bookshelf. Tell me about this, this book. And I'm like, whoa, I, one, I didn't know you could zoom on Zoom, but I guess the name says that you probably could, you know? And um, yeah, people are starting to look at your environment, how you are with if your kids pop into Zoom, they're meeting your family, which is something very sacred to your closest friends. That is such a good point about how new biases could form purely from your environment at home. Exactly. And, you know, also thinking about transitioning, you know, if I'm working in a workplace where I already don't feel a sense of belonging and inclusion, right? Mm, Let's think about elements it takes for you to feel a sense of belonging at work. You feel valued, you feel seen, you feel heard, you feel an interpersonal connection with your colleagues, with your Mm -hmm. bosses, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm already not having that sense of belonging and inclusion, and now again, in March, I've been told, okay, go sit at home. How do I feel now? I'm really not feeling seen. I'm really Mm -hmm. not feeling heard. I'm really not feeling that sense of interpersonal connection. And while there are so many benefits to working virtually, and I'm glad we have this opportunity because otherwise we would all just be laid off and, you know, completely jobless. But glad to have this platform 
But it is definitely a threat and a disruption to inclusion in some way if we don't manage it right. And many organizations ignored that during the pandemic. Early in the pandemic, I, I partnered with the Four Rays and we did a whole webinar on working in the belonging and inclusion in the virtual environment. And so many people reached out, you know, and just said, you know, I didn't even think about those particular elements. That's true. And it, yeah. but it's, it's definitely a big deal. Early in the pandemic, somebody reached out to me when the beauty salons closed and, you know, they were very concerned, you know, like, hey, oh, yes. I've been hiding my age by dyeing my hair, you know, yeah. and I can go to the beauty salon and my hair got, they're seeing my grades. And they were literally frightened because yeah. we know ageism in this industry is a problem. Yeah. Right? Average age is 35 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. So if I'm walking around here pretending to be 30 by, you know, uh, coloring my hair and now I'm frightened because I'm afraid my organization is going to know how old I am. And again, that triggers that bias. Oh, you can't cross your audience. You can't do this. I have demonstrated otherwise. Right. People yep. have a hard time fighting that bias. And equally, for younger people, you know, you might be, you know, your living situation is different. You're trying to get that share of voice in an industry where you have to be between the ages of 25 and maybe like seven and a half to be like, you know, t- truly respected and kind of like at your prime, you're almost at retirement after that. Some of these younger employees are coming into this sort of agency environment and it unlevels the playing field. They're at home. They have different living situations. They might be co-living with roommates or with family and just graduated and they have to do things in their bedroom or they might not have the same sort of setup. So it brings that age bias again there, even at the sort of like younger end of things. That's a great point. You know, living in New York City at a certain age, you're almost guaranteed to have two or three roommates. What Absolutely. happens in the same room, working from yeah. home is quite disruptive. Yeah. I think one thing will be great to kind of talk to you about as well is that we've talked about beyond race and how sex and sexuality and even ageism has been coming up. Can you talk about some of the other sort of blind spots that companies are facing to create that sort of equal playing field with so many things to be considering um, at the same time? Yeah, you know, we think about blind spots and we think about work around equity and inclusion and diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Many organizations, they really focus on recruiting, sourcing and hiring. And they think, okay, I've met, you know, I've done a great job. I have this diverse workplace. That's kind of it. That's where the buck stops, you know. And we forget about the experiences once they have been hired in those blind spots along the employee life cycle that can create inequities, right? So after I've been hired, right, am I getting feedback at the same pace or the same transparency that people in other demographics are getting? Am I being promoted at the same level? It's so many things. Do I have the same voice? Am I getting the same development opportunities? There are other blind spots that a lot of organizations ignore once people are hired. And then they're kind of like, well, I'm looking at my organization and all of my diversity seems to be at the, you know, at the bottom of the hierarchy. And And um, I can't figure out why, you know, as we go farther up, the less diversity we see. And it's simply because they've been ignoring the rest of the blind spots throughout the employee life cycle. And, um, you know, I think about just feedback, which is just so important. And I've had so many leaders to just share with me when I do executive coaching. And they've admitted that for their black employees and or other employees from other underrepresented groups, 
that they are not as transparent about their performance because they're afraid, oh, well, I'll be labeled a racist or I'll be wow. labeled a sexist. So what they do, they tell you, oh, yeah, you're doing a great job. You know, <laughs> so you think, OK, yeah, I'm doing a great job. And when it's time for that promotion opportunity, you're always being left behind. But you're like, hey, you said I was doing great. And the thing is with feedback, good or bad, it helps you to grow and progress. So they're being like taken away an opportunity there to develop themselves, but then they, they don't know why. So of course you're going to be thinking, oh, is it because of my sexuality or the color of my skin? Because you say I'm great, you know, and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to go somewhere else to find my next opportunity. So it becomes a leaky bucket they're coming in, coming in junior and mid-level, not really making their way up and then leaving to other organizations. That's right. Like you said, people want the transparency. If I have opportunity yeah. for development, tell me where they are so that I can develop myself or you can help to develop me. And mm. so I think that has been one inequity, you know, that has been really, really a barrier for Black employees or employees across many differences to be promoted within organizations. Whereas if I see you and you remind me of me and I feel comfortable, I'm going to tell you, oh, hey, look, you should probably do this in communications class. I'm going to do that. And I want to see because I see you in myself. So I'm looking on, I'm grading you based upon your potential. Yeah. But yet you have other people and other underrepresented groups or that are being judged based on proven accomplishment. You know, we get to that promotion part. I didn't get it. And then all of a sudden you're telling me all these things that I need development on, or you're not ready yet. And I'm like, well, what mm. do you mean? You, you've never told me before now I wasn't ready yet. In fact, I, I, had to yeah. tell me I was being too ambitious as I kept asking. I don't mm. understand what's going on. You know, and the word was, oh, you're being too ambitious. I'm like, what does that mean? You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and who else do you say that to? Yes. <laughs> who else do you say that to? You know, yeah. so we say these words and, and I feel comfortable and I've always felt comfortable asking, what does that mean? You know, I need yeah. more details. I need for you to be very specific. But many employees and underrepresented groups don't feel as comfortable asking those mm -hmm. questions. So like you said, it's, okay, I'm just going to leave and go somewhere yeah. else and maybe I can prosper. I really do think that feedback is like a critical touch point, especially when it comes to equity. And I think having a discourse and being comfortable with being open without fear of retribution is important. And I, I've definitely had situations in the workplace, um, more specifically um, after the racial reckoning that we had, where people would say statements like, oh, I, I didn't realize you work in a racist environment or this isn't a racist environment. And it could be coming from a white male. And I'll be like, but how do you know? Let, let's talk about it. And there'd be an initial kind of like lockdown and, you know, oh, sorry, I, I didn't want to offend. Let's not talk about it. But it's actually, no, let's talk about it. I think it's super important to talk about it in a sort of like, we're both two adults of a point of view. And Hopefully through sharing my story, I can get, you can get an understanding and hearing yours will give me the sort of view into the world that you see. So being able to have that sort of back and forth, I think, is important without fear of like, I don't want to say the wrong things or I have a view and it's not shared by somebody else. So I'm scared to say it, which is why I think the listening sessions that you run are so like vital and important and should become a culture of an organization. And we're doing things internally, like having what we call RGA circles, where you get together as an intimate group and you pick a topic and you have those brave conversations. Because until we can do that, we're always going to be avoiding 
talking or that sort of awkward moment, whether it be a performance review or in a meeting when someone's not being heard, being able to say, hey, this person hasn't been able to like say anything. Let's like, let's see if they want to say anything. Or as you do in your listening sessions, open it to chat. If you don't want to openly speak, drop something in a chat or slack me on the side, like whatever's comfortable for you. I think all of those ways are going to be important to get us all much more comfortable in having those conversations. That's right. Absolutely agree with that. So let's move on to talking about like the individual. We talked about you might be uncomfortable. You might be experiencing microaggressions or someone commenting on your hair or a book you've got in your bookcase behind you on the screen. How, what advice would you give to the individual of how they can tackle and answer some of these questions that people will pose to them or how they'll deal with something if they're uncomfortable in a situation? I understand, you know, it's it's very, very tough. If you're already suffering from imposter syndrome, it's very, very tough to address it when you are the recipient of these microaggressions or things like that. And just to tell you a quick story about a microaggression that I experienced early in my career, and it really shaped the way that I do my work. Before going to law school, I worked at a mid-sized law firm in Montgomery, Alabama, and there was only two African-American women that worked there. All of the attorneys were white males, but I worked there for three years. I was inspired to become an attorney there. I watched the Cosby show. I loved Claire Huxtable. I thought- Of course. (laughs) Yes. So I I applied for law school, get in. And on my last day working there, someone sent out a note. It's my last day. I'm headed to law school. You know, wish me good luck. So everybody did. But later that day, the only other African-American woman came into my office and said, can I share something with you? And I said, sure. And she goes, when I was in one of the senior partners offices earlier today, when I walked in, he said, congratulations and good luck in law school. Uh, uh, when she responded, oh, no, you're mistaken. I'm not going to law school. Natasha is. Mm-hmm. To which he responded, oh, so who are you? Oh, dear. <laughs> so she had worked there for five years. I had worked there for three years. And over the course of our tenure, we had become one person to him. Of we course. Isn't that crazy? It was. We no longer had separate identities. Yeah. And that moment when I heard that, I really started to question my decision of going to law school. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, who am I to think that I'm ever going to be seen or heard or respected in this field that's already so underrepresented by minorities and women? Mm -hmm. And you know, I came home. I'm like, I don't think I'm going. Like, you know, I'm not. I'm not going to be successful. Isn't it crazy as well that? those moments and those like one that that even happened, but those moments can deter you from pushing forward. That's right. And that's why I want to share this story because I know there are so many people who are apprehensive when they know they've been treated in an inequitable way, or they've been the recipient of daily microaggressions or bullying, harassment, you know, So it's very important that we do understand that we have to voice our concerns. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be in a disrespectful way, right? We don't have to call people out or challenge them, but we need to be comfortable in pointing out inequities and saying, just like when I talked about, you know, with, with the reviews, you know, or performance appraisals, it's, hey, you know, 
even if you get a, a good performance appraisal, you got to say, I know there's something I can improve on, right? Can you yeah. please give me two to three things that I can improve upon? Because what you're telling me on this review, that if there is a position that's available tomorrow that would give me a promotional opportunity, what this review is telling me is that I'm ready. Now, if you disagree with that, then I need to know why, right? So you've got to put it in a way that helps them to get to where you need to be. If someone is hurling microaggressions at you, you've got to tell them, you know, you've got to say, hey, I've got to give you some feedback. When you say such and such, or when you continuously call me by someone else's name that just so happens to be the only black person or the only other Asian person, because I've heard this through a my story. Oh gosh, yeah, I've had it, I've had it myself. (laughs) I think, I think it's, a shared thing, unfortunately, for sure. Mm-hmm. You've got to say, hey, when you do that, it, it rips my identity from me. So imagine yeah. if I'm constantly calling you by another name every single day, how would that make you feel? You know, mm-hmm. so we've got to be very transparent about our feelings and emotions. And to be quite frank, if our organizations don't respond appropriately and respectfully, then maybe that's not the organization then we yeah. need to be in. And I know yeah. it, it takes a while to get there in our heads, but guess what? You're not going anywhere anyway. So yeah. why not try for an organization where you can succeed and where you can thrive? But I think it's so important that we let leaders, that we let our colleagues and our organizations know, you know, just like we're doing now through these listening sessions and telling this like it's being invited, we got to start tying it back to this moment. Even if they stop yeah. the conversation, it doesn't we mean- gotta we got to keep it going. That's right. We have to keep it going. Even if it's on an individual basis to say, hey, you know, in 2020, we were sharing some of our experiences about being a Black employee. You know what? I need to continue that conversation and tell you about some other things that are happening that you should know about. Yeah. Um, You know, and keep that conversation going. I 100% agree with that. And it's something that I've I've definitely been pushing throughout my career. And, And like you, there's been moments where it'd make me doubt myself. I've been told I'm too ambitious. I've been told I'm too driven. How can driven not be a positive word? But also even stuff like I've been told that you can't just be everyone's friend and everything isn't a joke because how I work is I like to have fun with how I do it. You know, I build connections. Collaboration is a great thing. So I've had all of those and it's definitely kind of weighed on me and I'm definitely at a point now where I feel very comfortable and willing and eager and ready to talk on my behalf or anyone else's behalf on anything. But what I have heard from people is that it's tiring. You know, why must I be the one to always have to check someone? Why can't I just focus on my work? I don't want to be part of the solution. I don't want to have to keep talking about it. I don't want to be seen as that person that always has something to say or is a troublemaker. Or labeled the angry black woman. Or labeled the angry black if woman. If you are exactly. constantly saying, hey, this is happening, this is happening, then you start to get labeled. Yeah, and you're right. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that we no longer put this work on the backs of the people who have been marginalized mm-hmm. and that people who have had the privilege of yeah. not being marginalized to be allies to engage in bystander intervention, to address these issues on our behalf. Because like you said, it's very, very exhausting. It can be career killers. We've heard it so many times throughout this industry. You know, you think about even some celebrities who have said when they have called out inequities and pay and things, how they were blacklisted from industries. So yeah, there can be some ramifications. And that's why it's so important, again, that our fellow privileged colleagues use this 
this moment to be educated so yeah. that they can identify when these inequities happen and they can bring it to the attention. They can help us to rectify it without us always having to be the ones to do so. And yeah. it's very, very important and a crucial part as we move forward. Yeah. And I think it's the job of every single individual. I think being able to have instant feedback and catching things at the moment. So if you're in a meeting and something happens being like, this has just happened, let's take a pause. You know, something we've talked about before. One thing I'd love to talk to you about as well is following up on like the individual's role. What is the company's role and how can the company help to provide that brave space? I think it's by their response. Yeah. So when these things are brought to their attention, it's all about the response. Are they listening in yeah. a respectful way? Are they doing action items to help to rectify it? Are they following up, closing the loop? And then the key thing here, because this has what's been missing. This is what was missing when we were talking about sex and sexual harassment in the workplace. This is what's missing. We're talking about other inequities. Accountability. Because the one thing that an organization can do is to hold people accountable for their behaviors. And but that's the one thing that they have lacked doing. Yeah, we have seen, as we saw after Harvey Weinstein, we've seen it so many instances that you have people within all these organizations who are what I like to call highly valued, meaning you know, yeah. they're rainmakers, untouchable, yeah, un, the untouchable, you know, and, you know, and I thought when I first even worked in HR, I was like, okay, is there some kind of list walking around here with people's names on it? Um, you know, how do that, I get on that list? I'm like, yeah, how do I get on this list? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, these people can get away with anything. Yeah. I come to find out I don't want to be on this. That's actually the worst list to be on, yeah. but we haven't held people accountable for their behaviors. You know, you walk in and I do a lot of work in, in, in the industry outside of advertising where dress code and things like that is a thing. So I can walk in, I'm a housekeeper, you know, or a cleaning person. If I walk in, I got a button missing off of my uniform. Guess what? Oh, you got to go home. You know, yeah. I'm holding that person accountable. You know, if I'm one minute late, you know, it's, it's quick. Mm-hmm. And I start to notice that, you know, people who were in these ancillary positions or didn't have high profile positions, managers were quick to come in or write them up, fire them, do this, do that. You know, it was just you didn't it was no breathing room. But then I would have these leaders who were creating these toxic work environments. You know, it, it was leading through intimidation, harassment and fear. And I would bring in all of this evidence showing, corroborating, you know, that they were making people's lives miserable. And it was simply, oh, well, we can't afford to lose that person. And so it's all about accountability, because if I see this person get away with these behaviors, then guess what? Yeah. I'm going to do it too. And also the company understanding that you might not think you can afford to lose that person from some sort of business reason, but having a toxic culture is going to impact the work. It's going to impact your task force and losing and rehiring is a costly activity. So putting the value on the culture in the same way as you do on that sort of individuals. Exactly. In today's age with social media and so many sites dedicated to assessing organizational culture that employees can just get on, share what the organizational culture is. Oh, yeah. Um, and before, you know, back in the day, you, you didn't have that insight. You didn't know till you got there. The only thing yeah. you saw, whatever the organization put on their website, you're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. this is a great place to work. I guess I'll go work there. But now, like you said, if you want the best and the brightest, 
you've got to make sure your reputation is clean in terms of culture, consumers, customers, clients. They're holding organizations accountable for their culture and will be quick to disengage with you. So it's a high level of accountability from external stakeholders at this moment. And the cost is way more significant than that one person. That's the thing. It's, it's not hidden anymore, right? As you say, we've got those sites, we've got people speaking out, we've got things happening in the news, there's ways of talking about it anonymously. And if we continue listening, it's not something you can hide anymore. It's right there in the open and it's reflecting on your work and it's something your clients will see, it's something your future and current employees will see. Yeah, I keep a list of organizations that I don't support. And they're great. They have great products. I have, great I have that same I'm list not, too. You know, I'm not going to lie. There's something that I love. And I'm like, oh, I know. I that. I've got to cancel them. I don't want to. But I've done the same thing. Where I'm just like, oh, please, come on. No, this can't be true. It's like, no. yeah, I've, got, I've got my same sort of blacklist. Where yeah, there's there's know, no but, coming back. But we've learned that sometimes that's the only way to grab the attention. And, and that's a shame because your employees come, they work hard on a day-to-day basis. They want to see you succeed. And the fact yeah. that that's not enough, that you've got to have this level of accountability from external stakeholders, I think mm-hmm. that is a strong message of what our current state of culture is. And we've got to find a way. We're not relying on laws. We're not relying on policies. We're not relying on external reputation. We're relying on humanity and empathy. And we've got to get back to that point. That is just the right thing to do and nothing else should matter. And until we get there, we're going to keep having to have these conversations. Absolutely. So what are one or two things that you think that companies should be doing right now to understand the racial equities that exist within their own organizations? Well, starting off with just having the conversations that we've been talking about. If you haven't had listening sessions and you haven't facilitated those, start there. But don't stop with just that. So then you've got to go into data. Data tells a very beautiful story if you look at it. And you need to measure and look at all of those touch points that I talked about earlier where there can be inequities and blind spots in the organization. So not just higher rates and things like that. You can't stop there. Look at the rate of promotion. If I'm hired the same day as a white employee and they were promoted within three years, and I've yet to be promoted, or it took me five or six years, you got to look at that and see if that's a consistent thing. Looking at ratings on those performance reviews, who's getting meets expectations, who's getting exceed expectations, and then look at that tied into the promotion. So if you have Black employees, they're exceeding and meeting expectations, but yet they're not being promoted at the same rate, you've got to look at that. Of course, you want to look at your attrition. You've got to look at what development opportunities are being presented. So there are so many touch points that you can measure, but look at the data and then listen, come back and listen. So it's a back and forth. It's never ending. It's a cycle of getting quantitative data, getting qualitative data, and just keeping your eye on it. And then here's the most important part, going back to accountability, Once you've looked at that data and you've determined this is the benchmark and this is where we need improvement, everyone in a decision-making seat at the organization needs to be held accountable for moving the needle in the right direction. And that needs to be, you know, tied to compensation, bonuses, or even your ability to work at this organization, because it's all about accountability. I love that. And that's in this role where I'm able to look at things from an operational view 
that's exactly what I've been doing is making sure that there is that accountability and measures. So we've looked at the data and data transparency, I think is like supremely important. You know, we've been listening and we have these findings. Now, what do we do? We need to start embedding some of these changes into the fabric of our culture and how we work. It's never a tick box, as you say. It's not like, okay, it's a five steps. It's like one and two and then three and then go back to one. And you have to do all of these things at once. And to make sure you can maintain this behavior change, you have to start embedding them into how you work. How do you hire, like you say, but also in the advertising industry, how do you do your research? Who are we researching? What, who is involved? What's in a creative brief? How can we think about equity, not just in from an employee standpoint, but in the work that we put out into the world and making it become a systemized change rather than a moment in time, I think is going to help keep that conversation going, you know, throughout the organization. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny you say that when I work with advertising agencies, I always emphasize this, this work does not apply just to your workforce. Absolutely. Work. And if you think about the advertising industry, and you think about the platform that you have, you have the opportunity through your work to change the narrative for demographics who have been historically painted in a negative light. I did research one time um, when I first started doing work in the advertising industry of how am I portrayed in advertising campaigns as a black yeah. woman? Mm-hmm. And I was never portrayed in my profession. I was never yeah. portrayed in the car that I drove. I looked at 100 car, luxury car commercials that had been put out in the past 10 years. Not one time was there a black woman driving a luxury car. Yeah. Not one time. I drive a luxury <laughs> car, you know, yeah. not one time. And it was very rare that I was portrayed in a business environment as the person that was in charge. Yeah. It was always a service industry or, you know, something like that. Absolutely. Think about what, what narratives can we paint or create for demographics who typically don't get, you know, portrayed in that positive light, because mm. we think about bias and how it's formed. If I haven't had a lot of exposure to a demographic, where am I getting my perception, right? Usually it's from advertising, media, you know, news and things like that. So this industry has such a unique platform that if we use it in a positive way, imagine, right, how we can reshape people's biases and thereby you're creating new opportunities for others. Because if I can picture you as a CEO or CFO, because I'm seeing that now more and more, then I'm giving somebody that typically would not get that role an opportunity. So we've got to make sure inclusion and diversity and equity, like you said, is not just for the workforce, but it's weaved throughout the work that we do. And if our clients are not on board, you know, we've got to do a lot of convincing. I know that there's not a lot, sometimes a lot of autonomy, but we've got to push back on some of the ways that we've been asked to create or paint a picture of certain people. I love that. Thank you so much, Natasha. It's been so awesome talking to you. I could go on flowers that we usually do so um thank you for joining me today it's been a pleasure to connect with you on the importance of providing brave spaces and listening to those who are impacted by racial inequities in the workplace and to our listeners thank you for tuning in